Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father God, we thank you for this time at the beginning of this new year to look at your word, the Bible, and to look at Jesus. Lord, we pray as that we gaze upon him, that our souls would be encouraged and strengthened. In Jesus' gracious name we pray. Amen. Well, it's the beginning of 2021, and that means it is New Year resolution time. Now, I don't know if you're a big New Year resolution fan or not, but I'd like to be a little bit cheeky this evening and suggest a New Year's resolution for you, for all of us. And the resolution would be this. This year, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. So in 2021, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. Why that? Well, if you're a Christian, it's a call or encouragement to focus on Jesus. In the year ahead, none of us know what is going to happen. And let's face it, it's not the most promising start to a year so far. There's going to be a number of distractions through the year, a whole host of things that may pull us away, pull our gaze elsewhere. But if our eyes are fixed on anything other than Jesus, they're fixed on something that is less than best. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'd suggest that this is a great New Year's resolution for you too this year. To look and see who Jesus really is. Who is the real Jesus of the Bible? What's he like? What's he done? What does any of that have to do with me? As David mentioned earlier, the Christianity Explored course kicking off tomorrow would be a great place to start if that's something of interest to you. But what's the inspiration behind this New Year's resolution? Well, it's the book of Hebrews which we're looking at this evening. Now, by way of background, the book of Hebrews was written in the first century. We don't know who the human author of the letter is. He does describe it as a brief word of encouragement. It's 13 chapters long, so I think he's meaning the word brief in the same sentence as preachers use the word short to describe a 40-minute sermon, in that it could have been longer and there's more I could have said. But central to the book of Hebrews is this encouragement for the reader to fix their eyes on Jesus to consider Jesus, to look to Jesus, and especially to see him as our great high priest, which is something we'll think about in a few minutes' time. And the writer's motivation behind that encouragement is that as we do, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're encouraged to keep going in the Christian faith, to remain faithful to him, 
when facing trials and being tempted to turn back. So let's now turn uh, to our verses this evening, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 to 16. And what we see in these verses is we have these great truths about who Jesus is, and then these truths are the springboard or the encouragement for how we are to respond. I don't know if you've noticed, as Craig read, a repeated let us, the end of verse 14 and then again at the beginning of 16. These things flowing out of the glorious truths of who Jesus is. So let's begin by looking at Jesus and then turning to reflect on the two encouragements that flow out of what we've seen about Jesus. Now, four things I want us to see about Jesus from these verses. His greatness, his humanity, his divinity, and his compassion. So first of all, Jesus' greatness. Look with me from verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, in 21st century Edinburgh, some of the significance of that statement may be lost on us. And in part, that's why it's so important that we study our whole Bibles, that we see how the Old Testament points forward to who Jesus is. But for the first readers of this letter, the concept of a high priest was very, very familiar to them. And actually, it was one of these things that the early Christians that the writers writing to here were struggling with. One of the things that their mates down the marketplace would have been giving them a hard time about. Their seeming lack of a high priest. So many of them had grown up as Jews. They'd been enjoyed the grandeur and splendor of the temple, the big choir, the special festivals and feasts. They were used to taking their offerings to the priests. They could see the high priest, the one man who once a year on the Day of Atonement was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple where God's presence dwelt to seek God's forgiveness for his people. And now, what did they have? You've got nothing, mate, was what the world around them was telling them. And many were tempted to believe that to turn back and to leave Christianity behind. To which the, the writer says, no, you do have a high priest. You have a great high priest. So in what way was Jesus a great high priest? In one sense, the whole book of Hebrews is answering that question. We can't do it fully justice here just now, but three things I think we can see from our three verses. We see, first of all, that Jesus is, is a permanent priesthood. Verse 14, we have a great high priest. He's alive. Unlike all the other priests who died, Jesus lived and died and rose again, never to die again. As Hebrews 7.16 puts it, he has a priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. Secondly, he is a sinless priest. Look at the end of verse 15. He was without sin. All the other priests had to make sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the people. 
but Jesus was without sin. He did not need to make a sacrifice for his own sin, but instead he became the sacrifice for our sins. It was not the blood of animals that he shed, but his own blood, dealing with our sin fully and completely once and for all. So he is a permanent priesthood, a sinless priest. And thirdly, he has a heavenly dwelling. Verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You see, the other high priests, they would pass through the curtain into the holy place in the temple once a year for a short period and then would come back out again. Jesus has passed through the heavens He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God and from there is interceding for us day and night, every day and every night. Do you sometimes wonder if being a Christian is worth it? Even church now isn't the same, is it? You have to watch on Zoom. When you're in the building, you're all spaced out with masks on. Are you tempted to go back to your old life? Are those around you telling your faith is pointless and not worth it? The writer recognized that what those early Christians needed to keep going in their faith, and indeed what can keep us going, is catching a glimpse of Jesus' greatness, seeing why he is a great high priest, He says, you have not lost, you have gained. You do not have less, you have more. Because you have Jesus, a great high priest. Secondly, we see Jesus' humanity. Jesus is fully man and fully God. As verse 14 puts it, Jesus, the Son of God, human and divine. Jesus, his human name, So what did the angel Gabriel say to Mary in Luke 1? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He was a real human baby born that first Christmas. We're, believe it or not, nine days after Christmas now. Time flies. Just think, nine days after Jesus was born, he would have been very like every other nine-day-old baby. Now, I've got a soft spot for the Christmas carol away in a manger. But I think it's safe to say that Mary and Joseph would be raising an eyebrow at the line, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. There would have been a fair bit of crying in that household and not a lot of sleep happening nine days after Jesus was born. He was a real human baby. He grew up, he became a toddler, a child, a teenager, a man. He experienced life on this earth in all its brokenness and all its complexity. He was a real person who really lived in first century Galilee. The question is, well, why does that matter? Well, a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter two, the writer explains Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, he had to become human. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because only a human could pay for the sins of humankind. Only a sinless human. And that was the man, Jesus. Thirdly, we see his divinity. He was fully man and yet he remained fully God. The Son of God. In taking on human flesh, he did not cease to be God. He was no less God than before. The divine Son of God who created the earth and the heavens came down to the earth that he had made as a man and shed his blood as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. And why does that matter? Because when we grasp that Jesus is God and then we look to the cross, what we see is not an innocent third party taking the punishment for our sins and reconciling us to God. But rather we see God himself in his incredible mercy taking the punishment for our sins upon himself and reconciling us to himself. What incredible mercy. So, so far we've seen Jesus' greatness. We've seen his humanity and his divinity. And now, fourthly, his compassion. This is verse 15, and this is really the heart of this short passage. Look at it with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Jesus, we have a God who sympathizes with his people. We have a compassionate God, a sympathy that is not a detached pity, but a genuine compassion. Now, there's a Puritan writer, Thomas Goodwin, who back in the 17th century wrote an entire book based on this one verse. And one of the main thrusts of what he wanted his readers to see from this verse is that even though the risen Jesus is now in heaven, he is just as tender and approachable and compassionate now as when he walked on earth. So if you think of the Gospels, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So he then went on to feed the 4,000 with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Or Luke 7, the funeral procession of the only son of a widow is taking place. And Jesus sees that woman grieving over her only son, having already lost her husband. And Luke records Jesus' response. And when the Lord Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young men, I say to you, arise. And the dead man set up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. 
I could go on and on. But when you read the Gospels, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus' earthly life. And if that's something you've not done as an adult, can I encourage you to do so? I and many others here at Chalmers would be delighted to do that with you. But as you read those eyewitnesses' accounts, you see Jesus' compassion. You see his heart for broken people like us. And what Hebrews 4.15 tells us is that that same Jesus, now risen and seated at the right hand of God in heaven, is no less compassionate and sympathetic than he was when he walked on earth. He does not sit aloof, but he sits next to our Heavenly Father with a sympathetic and compassionate heart, interceding for us as our great high priest. Because we have a God who knows, who feels, who understands, who sympathizes. Now, it's possible this evening you might be thinking, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand the struggles and pain that I'm facing, the temptations I'm wrestling with. No one gets it. And that may be right. I may not understand. But Hebrews 4.15 says there is someone I can point you to that does know what you're going through, who does understand. Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. One writer put it really helpfully like this. Listen to this. He said, Jesus was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when they needed him most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend who would have unfriended him when he turned 33, he who will never unfriend us. So often the harder life gets, the more alone we feel. As the pain increases, the isolation that we feel increases. We feel helpless and alone. And the Bible speaks to us in those moments and says simply, you are never alone. Jesus is there. He knows you. He understands. He sympathizes with you. He has been tempted as you are. So turn to him. But what about our sins? If Jesus never sinned, does he really know what temptation is like? Does he know the pain and guilt and shame of our sin? C.S. Lewis wrote on this as he reflected on these verses. He said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Jesus never lay down. He endured all the temptations without ever giving in. He knows the strength of the temptation better than any of us. 
And he does not roll his eyes at your pain or tut-tut at your struggle with sin. Indeed, he bore the pain and guilt and shame of our sin on the cross. The fact he was sinless does not diminish his ability to understand and sympathize with us, but it means that he can rescue us out of our sin because his sinlessness is our salvation. So fix your eyes on Jesus. See his greatness. See his humanity, his divinity, and see his compassion. So since these things are true, so what? There's two applications that the writer draws out by way of encouragement. The two lettuces in the passage. First of all, hold fast from verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. That's simply the gospel, or as he puts it later, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the unshakable hope we have in Jesus. Hold fast to our great high priest. The writer here is showing us not only why we should hold fast, but also why we can hold fast. Because in Jesus we have a great high priest who is alive and seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. A great high priest who is the son of God. A great high priest who is sympathetic and compassionate towards us. And we hold on not in our own strength, but in his. Did you notice in verse 15 that it is in our weaknesses that Christ sympathizes with us. He knows that we are weak, but he is strong. So we hold fast our confession. We hold fast to Jesus. We keep going, holding tightly to him in his strength. And then secondly, we draw near. We close with this wonderful verse, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help, sorry, find grace to help in time of need. What are we to do? We are to draw near. Where to? The throne of grace. How? With confidence. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help. And when? in time of need, which, let's face it, is always. We draw near to God, to the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment, but of grace. We draw into God's presence because what is in view here is a personal relationship with the living God. I think for me, one of the hardest things about the last year has been the COVID restrictions and not being able to see my mum and dad as much as out of light, not being able to give them a hug, being forced to keep our distance. But wonderfully here, there are no restrictions, COVID or otherwise, keeping us from our Heavenly Father. He is beckoning us to draw near to him through Jesus. And what does it look like to draw near to him? 
is getting to know him, spending time with him, delighting in his word, the Bible, listening to him speak to us through the pages of the Bible, speaking to him, praying to him, bringing our weaknesses to him, the one who is able to sympathize perfectly with us, bringing our struggles and our temptations to him, pouring out our heart to him, remembering that he knows us, he loves us, and he is beckoning us to draw near. And that applies to us individually, it applies to us corporately as a church family too. We draw near to him together. A great example of that is our monthly prayer meeting coming up this week, where we gather together as a church family to pray to him. And what are we doing there? We're expressing our corporate weakness, our corporate dependence on him, and lifting up these things to him in prayer as we draw near to him. Now, when I lived in London, I had a friend who was a decent cricketer in his day. And he was a member of Marlebone Cricket Club um, who play their matches at the famous Lord's Cricket Ground. And one evening, my friend very kindly took me along uh, to a match there. And because I was with him, I was able to get access to the members' enclosure, which is some of the best seats in the house. Now, having been invited along and having got there, it would have been utter madness of me to have access to those seats in the members' enclosure and thought, do you know what? I think I'm going to stand by the burger van outside and watch the match from there. I'm sure I can peer through it. It'll be fine. I had access into the heart of the ground. And likewise, because of Jesus, we can draw near to God. And yet so often we don't. And there's no reason for us not to. So what is it that's keeping you from drawing near to God? He's beckoning you draw near. And not only that, possibly one of the most shocking parts of the whole book of Hebrews, and certainly of these verses, is the two words, with confidence. The fact that anyone, let alone sinful people like me and you, can draw near to God is astounding, and to do so with confidence. But that's what it's saying. We can draw near to God, to the throne of grace, into God's presence, with confidence, boldly, with reverence, yes, but without any fear of incurring shame or punishment. My question is, how? Well, because of Jesus, our great high priest, because the basis on which we draw near to God is 100% on the basis of who Jesus is, what he has done, and who we are in him. It is not on what we have done or will do. If back at Lord's, as we walked towards the members' enclosure, my friend had said to me, right, we'll get, we'll get to the edge of the enclosure, um, I'll put in a good word for you, and then they'll take you down to some practice nets, and they'll get a kid to lob a couple of balls at you. And all you've got to do is just gently, you know, knock them away, it'll be fine, and then in you go. Now, I've never played cricket in my life. That would not end well. 
and I certainly would not have been able to approach with any sort of confidence at all. Now, even if I was a good cricketer, I would not have been able to approach with complete confidence. What if I messed up? I got an unlucky bounce. Likewise, if the basis on which we could approach God was 99% Jesus and 1% me, I could not draw near with confidence. I could not have full assurance. But wonderfully, wonderfully, the basis on which we draw near is 100% Jesus. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ. I think there's also another dimension to this confidence as well. It's confidence not only on the basis of who we're trusting in that we draw near, but also it comes from knowing who we are drawing near to. It's not like approaching a friend or an earthly father and having to wonder what sort of mood they might be in that day or whether this is a good time. Rather, we're drawing near to our Heavenly Father. In these verses, we have seen his heart. We know that whatever the circumstances, he will receive us gladly. He will never roll his eyes and think, oh, not you again. Or what do you want now? What have you done? Or I'm busy at the moment. You draw near knowing that he will welcome you with open arms. So let, let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The closing words in time of need. That's not to say God's just there for the rainy days. I think we all know that we're always in need. We may see it more clearly or feel it more acutely at one time or another. But each of us needs help. We have weaknesses We've limitations. We just can't do it all. We need help. And yet, deep down, we probably feel we don't deserve the help that we need. And yet, what do we do as we draw near to that throne of grace? We receive mercy. We find grace to help. Not deserved help, but gracious help. A throne of grace where our greatest needs are met. And my prayer is that each of us, amidst the various challenges and trials that will face us in this coming year, will draw near to our gracious God with confidence. So as we close, what will you make your New Year's resolution to fix your eyes on Jesus? If you're not a big fan of New Year's resolutions, then look at it this way you'll never have to make another one because this one will do you every year for the rest of your life until you meet Jesus face to face in glory. And it's not a resolution you have to do in your own strength. He will help you. And remember the one you are fixing your eyes upon is your great high priest, that he is compassionate and sympathetic and beckoning you to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Let's pray to him now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our great high priest, 
that he knows us, that he loves us, that he sympathizes with us. We thank you that he was the sinless man, that he became the sacrifice for our sins, dealing with our sins fully and completely once and for all, so that all those who trust in him can enjoy all eternity with you. Father, we thank you that he is alive, that he is sitting at your right hand in glory, interceding for us day and night. And we thank you that we, through him we can draw near to you with complete confidence. We pray that you would plant that truth deep down in us so that whatever lies ahead for us in this coming year, that we would draw near to you with confidence, that we would hold fast and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.